Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life. Today I catch up with Peter Murray, OBE, one of the most influential men in the London built environment scene. Tune in as we chat about how he fell in love with the world of architecture, starting the infamous Blueprint magazine, and why he is so passionate about designing active cities. Hey, Peter, how are you doing? Welcome to Design Your Life. I'm glad to be here. I'm honored to be your guest. Oh, it's, it's a real thrill to have you here, Peter. And we're in London. We're in, uh, in, in Soho Radio in Soho, and um, we've caught up just before an event that's taking place tomorrow at NLA, uh, which you'll be at, no doubt. Indeed. Um, and I'm looking forward to spending a few hours there. You're one of the most influential people in London. Um, you've been going a while. Um, you've done so many great things, and, and you founded so many businesses and organizations. It's incredibly impressive. I know when we're doing the research, when Luca and myself are researching your, your background, it just kind of blows us away with your achievements and by no means you're done. You're still going strong and still doing so many things. Um, you've inspired so many countless uh, architects and designers across the country, and you have a phenomenal career, and you continue to do so. Um, what led you to architecture? How did you get into, uh, into that field? Well, I think it was my father who really attracted me to the whole idea of architecture. He, he was actually a public health officer, he, he, but he, he liked architecture he would uh, be uh, take us around parish churches mainly almost every place we went through with a nice church we would stop and go around it i really like that and he also uh, to earn a bit of extra money he did actually draw up plans for people who wanted home extensions or oh, wow. uh, small houses so often at night he'd be at a drawing board and drawing away and I, I still have his set square, which he, he oh. used. I haven't used it for 40 years or so. We, we don't use T-squares or set no. squares anymore. But uh, So I, he really created that love for it. And also I was brought up in a place called Laycock in Wiltshire, which was a, a sort of medieval village, one of the ah. potentially uh, most beautiful villages in England, but it, it had a really interesting backstory. So... We lived in a 13th century cruck house. Do you wow. know what a cruck house no, is? No, I don't. A cruck house is actually made if you if you cut a tree in in half uh, vertically, you get a, a branch and the trunk gives you a curve, which creates the the roof and the ah. walls of a of a, a building. So you can often see them on the outside of medieval buildings. The this curved timber and barns as well. And barns. barns and barns. And so that that really gave me an interest in history, architecture, and uh, was um, a part of growing up. And, yeah, what was that like? I mean, was that a quite remote village? Uh, well, I always thought so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was stifling, really. I've uh, I had a very enjoyable childhood generally. 
But I just wanted to get out, and you know, I've come to London and never wanted to go back since. I like going to the country for the weekends, yeah. but not much more than that, really. And uh, as I say, architecturally, it was very interesting, so I owe it something for that. Uh, Laycock Abbey was the uh, sort of, uh, it was an abbey, but it then became a big house for a family called Talbot and Fox Talbot, famous oh, yeah. for the uh, inventing photography. Wow. Uh, he was there. So that actually did have an influence on me, an interest in photography generally, which I've always had. And how did that lead to going to enrolling for an architectural school? Well, I, I, I guess uh, when I was at school, I, uh, I think English and art were the two things that I was most interested in. So when I was at school, I edited the uh, school magazine. Ah. And so... A bit like Branson. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it started me going on, on the whole, whole idea of publishing. Yeah. But also, as I say, you know, I, had to, I had thought... I suppose, you know, almost from the age of 10, I thought architecture was what, what I wanted to do. Wow. And I, I was undecided, I suppose, just before I went to university, whether I would be, I would do English or architecture. And I went to a, a Christmas lecture uh, about architecture. His name was Tom Burra, I remember, who, was, uh, who taught architecture at the School of Architecture in Bristol. And so I, I went to this lecture. And I was so inspired by his lecture, actually, that I thought, right, it's going to be architecture, not English. And so I went to the Royal West of England Academy School of Architecture, as it was then. And I yeah, went through three years there before moving to London. But actually, almost as soon as I got there, I, I, I did start, start a, a, a magazine, a magazine called Megascope. Uh, which I did with uh, one of, one of my friends who was uh, yeah we were then in second year so uh, yeah I, I was I was into uh, quite active at the time as well so you know publishing and activism sort of go together we had a whole group who ran an anti ugly campaign <laughs> um, that's great we called ourselves six architects because the the university had recently put on. Uh, Pirandello's play six, six uh, actors in search of an author. So ah. we called ourselves six, six architects. We we held a public vote amongst all the architects, uh, no, all the students at Bristol University, uh, as to what they thought was uh, their uh, most hated building, and they came up with a, a tower in Bristol. Uh, it's called the Robinson Tower. Robinsons were one of the biggest companies in Bristol at the time. Actually, it wasn't a bad building. We actually didn't agree with the choice, but we, we nevertheless went ahead with it. And we, we burned a large effigy of the Robinson Tower uh, wow. in front of the university, and uh, that, that caused a bit of a stir. <laughs> <laughs> and Buckminster Fuller lectured at your university. That yeah. must have been incredible. Yes, it was. Well, we, 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 we had two levels of lecturing. There, there were people you were invited and uh, people who were invited by the university. So the, the two memorable people who came to speak who um, we invited as students, one was uh, now Sir Peter Cook, who was the founder of Archigram, oh, yeah. Yeah. and uh, Cedric Price, who was very influential uh, for me uh, later on in my career. And uh, at that time, Archigram were publishing magazines as well. So I had a great uh, affinity, really, to Peter Cook. And uh, the, the, the members of Archigram, they, I mean, they were like a, a pop group, really. They were the Beatles of yeah, architecture at yeah, the yeah. time. 
and really doing uh, what I found very exciting work. So that fitted in very well when Buckminster Fuller came because he was invited actually for three months to um, teach a bit of research and uh, generally be around the place at, at, at Bristol. And uh, yes, he, he, it, it was an amazing time because he would have these series of lectures. He generally lectured for about four hours at a time, Jesus, minimum. Jesus, wow. And I remember he would always, he would start in a sort of praying position. He would put his hands together and uh, just be silent for what seemed like an age. <laughs> but it was brilliant because everybody just was waiting on his every word, cool. really. And I've always tried to do that, but can't. you can only hold it for a few seconds before you feel you have to talk. But he yeah. was able, you know, you felt like 30, 40 seconds and everyone was waiting. And he would generally start off his talks with just three little uh, pieces of wood, uh, which he would show the, the strength of triangulation, basically, which he would play with in front. And uh, the, uh, you know, the, the triangle was his key uh, piece of geometry, which actually then made geodesic domes and all the other elements of uh, geometry, which he's uh, so famous for. But I think that uh, what, to a certain extent, affected me more was his thinking around a spaceship Earth, and uh, that had uh, has a lot of resonance today, clearly, about sustainability issues. So he, 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 he thought we were all astronauts and we were on this uh, system which we had to manage yeah. and uh, make as efficient as possible. Was he, like a, was he a futurist? Oh, definitely. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, he, was, he was particularly keen on uh, doing more with less, mm -hmm. almost the opposite to Miesian ideas about less is more. And so... Uh, the, there's a film about Norman Foster, which is uh, how much does your building weigh, Mr. Foster? And that was a question that uh, Buckminster Fuller would ask people because he ah. thought you you need to know how uh, your building touched the ground. Yeah. And so you know, he did a, a lightweight housing, dome housing. He had ideas for whole towers that you would pick up on helicopters and drop into the Arctic. Yeah. Transport. So so the whole whole aspect of lightweight ar architecture was uh, really important to him uh, but as I say the thing that influenced me was uh, his ideas around essentially sustainability uh, it wasn't, wasn't that it was CO2 global warming no. in those days we didn't know about that Just but it was about how you made resources available to what well, he saw it as everybody in the world make efficient use of it and uh, it was he he had great faith in the architectural profession actually uh, slightly misplaced as it turns out but uh, in 1961 in london at the uh, conference of the union internationale des architectes uia uh, he launched the world design science decade and the idea was that he w he would actually corral students around the world to research the use of resources so that we could actually be wow. more efficient and uh, recycling was a big part of this as yeah. well. So, you know, really far sighted. I mean, he was looking into the future and he actually thought a lot of 
he could actually change things by 1986, uh, which, you know, oh. unfortunately didn't. But yes, he, he was looking to the future, but he was also a bit of an optimist. Yeah, but he was so ahead of his time, wasn't he? Or what, what happened since? I mean, why have we, like now, this is a resurgence of, you know, being sustainable and we're happening because we have no other option. Um, but how, what, what, how did, where did he get his insights from to, to think that way? Uh, he well he 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 was a uh, I would say he, that's what he spent his time doing was thinking teaching talking. Mm-hmm. He had a few business operations. He wasn't great at business, mm-hmm. uh, but he he was a great thinker. And uh, I, uh, when I uh, when I was leaving Bristol, um, I had to go up to the Architectural Association for uh, an interview, and uh, so I got on the train. Uh, and then the the train dry, uh, journey was probably about two and a half hours, mm-hmm. and Buckminster Fuller was sitting there, and uh, so um, you know I obviously had to talk to him, and the thing problem is that he's uh, he was rather deaf, oh. so you actually had to shout at him all the time, <laughs> so he kept on asking me questions, uh, uh, some of them I couldn't answer, and he he was also talking about his philosophy and so on. And the, his whole carriage was listening, and I, 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 I felt very embarrassed actually having to <laughs> shout, shout my answers to him all the time. But uh, anyway, I got to the A, and I did the interview, and I got a place there. Wow! And then when you left university, you became the technical editor of uh, Architectural Design Magazine. Is that right? Uh, yes, I, 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 I did. I uh, did did a couple of things b- before that. Okay. Uh, because uh, when uh, I was still at the Architectural Association, I uh, looked for a holiday job. Uh, you know, you had to get a job as in an office uh, in those days. Uh, and I decided that actually I wanted to do something more in the media. I, you know, I quite like to have uh, you know been on the television, but there was a television program well tomorrow's world and i yeah, I, I wanted that. to get on that but i uh, they they weren't hiring at the time but uh, I had been producing while I was at the a a a magazine called Clip Kit, which literally was a clip and a kit it was uh, a whole series of pages plastic binding clips had just oh, been invented neat. and we did uh, 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 an issue a month and we sent it out to people and in the end of six months they had a a full clip and uh, the uh, copy was seen by a chap called Harry, Harry Pecinotti and Harry Pecinotti was the art director of Nova which was a yeah, rather yeah, trendy yeah. women's magazine at the time David Hillman, David Hillman became yeah. the That's art right. director later yeah but uh, Harry uh, Pecinotti uh, was there at the beginning. He actually created the whole uh, graphic uh, approach because he used uh, a, he'd found a, a wooden typeface, uh, which he renamed Harry Fatface, and that was the basic <laughs> uh, uh, typeface we used in, on the magazine. Very influenced by uh, Twen. You know, yeah. the, the whole idea of these strong, bold uh, yeah, headings, yeah. which I think you uh, sort of work, you respect, I think. Yeah, I love um, that. Large pictures, judicial use of white space, yeah. uh, which is uh, an approach which really has impacted my work really through um, the whole of my working life. And uh, so uh, so then so I, I worked on Nova in the art department with 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 Harry uh, over the uh, summer and then wow. somebody said well would you like to be design editor uh, of uh, 
It's just a couple of days a week. So I said, yeah, that's fantastic. So I was design editor of Nova while I was still trying to do uh, my thesis. And then on top of that, I met um, Robert Brownjohn, who's probably a name you might uh, recollect, who I I think, you know, one of the greatest of the post-war American uh, graphic designers. Good good friend. Some appeared to Alan Fletcher, good friends of Alan Fletcher. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And uh, so uh, just at at the time that uh, then uh, BJ, as he was known, he just joined up... um, uh, with uh, Camel, Hudson, and Brown John. So uh, Donald Camel had just made, or was you know, about to make performance with uh, Mick Jagger and we, together with Nick Rogue and uh, Donald, uh, uh, and then Hugh Hudson. It was uh, Camel, Hudson, and Brown John. So Hudson then went on to make Chariots of Fire later. Wow. So uh, they were quite a, in, in Chelsea, they were quite an intense little creative group. Wow. Problem was that at the, at the time, uh, yeah, BJ had, uh, he did have a bit of a drink problem, which yeah. was uh, made, working in the morning was very creative. Uh, I would go out with, to lunch with him every day and after lunch, not so productive. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, pretty wild nights as well. So it was- yeah. Didn't he end up in New York? Uh, no, he end, end, ended up in, in London. and oh, uh, Yeah. Well, he was from America, right? He was. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, he, 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 he trained, trained in America. He, he worked with uh, Serge Chemayev to start off with. He set up with him with Chemayev's son and uh, then came to England in 1960, uh, working in ad agencies to start with and set up on his own. Yeah, wow. Okay, so <laughs> what, how did he get to be the to, the technical editor of Architectural Design Magazine? Was that after Nova then? Yes, so after Nova, so I I got so that and with with, uh, with BJ, uh, I was doing too too many things really focused on my thesis. So I I never <laughs> I never completed my thesis oh, at really? the Architecture Association uh, because it's working working for Nova. Uh, you know the expense accounts were more than you'd earn as an architect. So wow. uh, so it was it was the uh, good old days. And it was and 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 it was right in the heart of swinging London. It was an amazing time in London actually, which uh, you know London took. Uh, nearly 50 years to get back to that sort of energy that it had in 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 the 60s it, it was really a great time to be there and actually being in a magazine like that put you right in the forefront yeah. of all these things which were going on so it was a fantastic period so having worked in the in the art department at uh, uh, Nova for a bit uh, a chap called Tim Street Porter who was then uh, a photographer of uh, uh, grainy black and white uh, 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 portraits of architects and so on uh, he and and buildings now doing uh, ritzy um, homes and uh, in Los Angeles and expensive hotel photo- photography and so on so a very different sort of world he's in now but he recommended to Monica Pigeon who was the editor of uh, architectural design at the time that uh, I could help in out in the art department. Monica Pigeon was a fairly amazing person. She was the uh, doyen of, of architecture editors at the time, uh, ah. you know, the only woman editor, knew everybody. She'd been born in Chile, so she was very international. Everybody, all the architects of the time would come into the office on a regular basis. So it was a very special place to be. 
but she also and uh, Theo Crosby actually mm. was her, of, uh, who later was at Pentagram. Yeah. He he was one of the technical editors before me, and the technical editors were given great uh, leeway by Monica. I mean, she she led the team, but she would give you your head as well. Yeah, and so. That, that was in it, it, sort of end of the 60s, early 70s, and we were beginning to... The fanzines and punk and so on was really uh, what uh, you know, driving uh, cultural change in London at the time. So uh, I, I, I shifted the magazine from being letterpress and copperplate uh, into uh, being uh, printed on web. Um, and you know, you you what you pasted down on the paper was what you printed, yeah. And so much freer wow. layouts and so on. That's it, cool. That must have been a really revolutionary at the time. It, it, it was a bit of a change. I was desperately unpopular with all the people who preferred the more classic format yeah, yeah, of the yeah. magazine. Uh, hated it. I think Theo hated it as well. Uh, but it was popular with, I guess, a younger audience at the time. Because then, rather like uh, an experience with Buckminster Fuller, you know, th there was a, a huge interest in solar power, recycling, energy conservation. It was all about energy then because mm. we thought uh, oil was going to run out. And so it turned from being a, a magazine really focused on, you might say, the heroic period of modern architecture into a magazine which was much, much more focused on uh, those issues around uh, uh, changing uh, the way we build in order to create a more sustainable future. Mm. Um, an approach which actually, as soon as Britain discovered North Sea oil, went out of the window and everyone oh. forgot about it. Wow. So did you ever practice as an architect then? No, the, you, go, the, so you went straight into editorial work. Yes. The, the, the only architectural practice I ever did, I worked for the uh, Wiltshire County Council. Laycock was in Wiltshire um, uh, working on Salisbury Fire Station. And that was for two months. And after that, uh, since my bus fare to the office cost almost as much as I was earning, I thought... Um, Screw Maybe that. this isn't the job for me. Well, that's interesting. So, what what is it that drew you? Were you attracted by um, editorial, you know, publishing and and talking about architecture and what what is it that drew you to that? I mean, I know you could talk about you started that kind of fanzine at at, um, uh, at the uni. Um, did that just is that just an evolution of your experience? Uh, well, I, I, I suppose, as I say, I've always been, uh, you know, something of an activist, really. And I think that the, the media is uh, really important in terms of how you get your, you know, get ideas across, how you communicate ideas. And so I, I would say I've always seen audiences who I wanted to communicate with. And when I was a student, I was very active in the British Architectural Students Association, which mm -hmm. linked up all the schools. Uh, so uh, doing a magazine which was distributed to them, um, they created uh, a, a good audience, but also uh, the British Architectural Students Association had um, uh, representatives every school. So they were also a very good distribution network. Mm -hmm. So send out copies and... Actually, funny. Last night I uh, bumped into a chap who used to run 
Wolfonins. Oh, yeah. Well-known branding and uh, design company. He, he used to run that. He was one of, my, one of my first salespeople up in Glasgow where he wow. had studied architecture. So uh, so networks, uh, you know, how, how you sell these things is just the important. Um, and, of course, you know, that sort of communication is so much easier these days. In those days, you had to print it. You yeah. had to get it out somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that whole mechanism of... Uh, I'd say distributing ideas is was really important to, yeah. uh, and and started to attract me. Uh, I guess more than doing it, and uh, I, I, as I said, I was very influenced by Cedric Price, and Cedric Price. There was a program on the BBC uh, only recently which suggested that he was probably the most important uh, British architect of the late twentieth century, and he built hardly anything an aviary at London Zoo with Lord Snowden and a couple of other things. But he, he built very little. And so to a certain extent, I guess from that, uh, I realised that uh, building wasn't necessary in order to have an impact on architecture. Mm. There are other ways of having an impact on architecture and yeah. that uh, uh, media was something that I uh, thought uh, would work for me. And interestingly enough, um, as I said, P Sir Peter Cook, who founded Archigram, uh, I was a huge fan of his. Uh, he was also my fifth year tutor at the Architecture Association. And in his uh, final report, um, he suggested that uh, something like, um, I'm not sure Peter has the patience to carry out long term projects. Ah. And, and, and I think he's, he was absolutely right. You know, I, 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 building design was a weekly paper. I just loved the weekly yeah, yeah. turnaround, Fast uh, the, the the time, and you know that then moving on. So yes, I, I, I think he was absolutely right in that. Although I, I, I felt very hurt at the time, and it wasn't until uh, many years later when uh, I, I went to an opening of a, there's a book called Clip Stamp Fold, which actually featured Clip Kit in it. Uh, and uh, also other small magazines of the 1960s where I bumped into one of the people from Archigram who had worked with Peter Cook and uh, uh, they actually said to me, oh, well, uh, well, of course, Peter Cook, he preferred publishing because he didn't have the patience to build buildings. And so <laughs> I thought he, Peter Cook had obviously reflected his own issues yeah, exactly. uh, in his report on me. So I felt better about it after that. And you founded Blueprint Magazine in 1983, which uh, I remember seeing that when I was at Pentagram. They had a copy delivered every month. Uh, was it monthly or bi-monthly? Monthly. Monthly. Yeah. And I remember just like looking at that and just like losing yourself in the in the publication. How did that come about? Well, I'd I'd worked on um, building design newspaper, which which was a, a weekly trade magazine to architects, builders. Uh, and uh, construction industry more generally. And then I was editor of the Royal Institute of British Architects Journal. And uh, that was just two members of the RIBA. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had a very interesting time at the RIBA and got very involved politically there as well, which was which was fun. But I, I, I started feeling I was being, becoming institutionalized and um, needed to get out a bit. And also, I'd long been thinking that uh, here we are, we've got all these magazines being produced for architects, but nobody's producing magazines for people who aren't architects, yeah. the general public, wider public, yeah. and uh, the, there was some need to get out there. And 
I guess now we you know we talk much more about uh, uh, participation and so on, but there, there was very little thought of that. And actually, mm. interestingly enough, uh, Theo Crosby again, um, he was very important around that time because he uh, did an exhibition at the Hayward Gallery called The Environment Game, which again was about how, how do you include more people in the debate about the built environment? And that was uh, uh, some inspiration as well. So I thought, how do we start a magazine? Haven't got any money, and uh, but it's just an idea. So uh, I organised a, a, a lunch of all the uh, writers and uh, editors and interested parties that I knew, and uh, we decided that we would uh, start doing it at weekends, that we would uh, not pay ourselves anything but we would just see if we could make a go of it so that was that was when we started in 1983 we wrote to a, a few architects who we, who we thought had a bit of money and said you know can you help fund us so you know, Norman Foster Richard Rogers Terry Farrell all wrote back with a check which was very nice of them and so we started producing this we used the architecture association uh, print room to put it together and basically, we would start on a Saturday morning that uh, and we had, let's say, uh, five or six journalists who would then just start belting out stories. Um, there'd be some people who would spend longer time writing the features and they would all bring them to the Architecture Association in Bedford Square. So uh, by about uh, you know latter part of Saturday, we would have uh, most of the magazine in terms of what was going into it. It, it would then start laying it out. Uh, Diane Sujic, uh, I chose as the editor because uh, he had been he'd worked at Building Design with me, but also had been writing for the Sunday Times, uh, very good article Sunday Times. So he had a good picture of how to write for the public and yeah. not just for the you know, internalized yeah. architectural world and then uh, Simon Esterson was the art director oh, yeah. who I uh, greatly respected to be working uh, with the architect journal and was with the architect journal when we were all doing it um, uh, moonlighting how did you convince them to do that all of them do it for nothing did, with the view that they would get a salary or get paid in the future or do they do it because they love I think, yeah, I think everyone loves the subject matter. Uh, matter. I think that it's. Uh, I've I've always uh, liked uh, collaborative working. Really, mm -hmm. we. I don't think. I don't think we talked about money really in terms of uh, it making us rich. I think we were all just fascinated by uh, by the huge changes which were taking place at the time. You know, we, we'd been through. Uh, or a, a decade, really, of of, of recession. I mean, mm. Younger architects didn't have any work. Yeah. Even uh, John Young, who's one of the partners of uh, Richard Rogers and Partners, uh, before they won the Pompidou Centre, he said he was driving taxis before, you know, because wow. they, he uh, couldn't uh, earn a living. That, uh, you know, so th at the beginning of the 80s, then after that whole period of what I would call a lot of paper architecture from younger architects, there was this this blossoming of I think creativity, activity, there was a whole, design uh, was uh, really becoming much more the thing in London. I mean, for a long time, Pentagram had been almost the only major corporate, yeah. uh, uh, but other others were then uh, growing up, uh, getting larger, and so 
uh, we wanted to uh, mirror that really so uh, it wasn't just about architecture i'd been involved in arch only architecture magazine it was architecture uh, design more generally the idea that actually uh, you know, the word design spans uh, the whole realm from fashion through to yeah. interiors through to architecture through to city planning so uh, it was a, a broad magazine um and then you start thinking well how, how, how you have to start selling it luckily in those days it was fairly easy to actually get uh, magazines onto the shelves of people like wh smith yeah. and the various news sellers now yeah. uh, you have you have to pay to get on it's much more difficult yeah. then it was then it was easier and uh, so we had a reasonable distribution we 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 caught up to about 12,000 copies a month during uh, that time so we we realized that it was beginning to work so after a year we all decided to we raised a bit more money and we uh, found an office which was um a building was about to be pulled down uh, I mean, that was 4 pound a square foot which was well, pretty cheap even in those days actually yeah. and and we we got going we we uh, fitted out the office with um apple mac classics you know which took yeah. about five minutes just to <laughs> warm up every time you stuck a floppy disk into them and 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 off 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 we went and so I, our, our circulation was, was 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 pretty good we um we got a pretty good response from uh our readership generally and looking back and hearing from people like yourself and others that uh, uh, read it avidly at the time. It's, it's, it's great to think that it was actually so appreciated. I, I don't think we ever quite got to the scale of circulation that got to the man in the street, though. But what was very encouraging is that actually what it did, it actually put the ideas and also the people in front of other journalists, journalists on yeah. newspapers, journalists on television. Uh, so you know, people like Alan Yentob then set up the BBC Design Awards, which oh. we were involved with. And uh, so there were, there were a whole series of, of uh, spin-offs actually yeah, yeah. in other media which came out of that. And I would say the only thing I'm, I'm sort of, I'm slightly guilty, I do think that we contributed, We were, I don't think we say we were responsible for, but we contributed to the sort of Starkitect personalization yeah. of, 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 of architects, of the way we, we dealt with them. And uh, uh, one of the things I, I'd, I'd read before we launched Blueprint that at Vogue, Every time they have a model on the cover who makes eye contact with the reader, sales go up by 20% or something. Yeah. So that was one of the first briefs to all the photographers who uh, did the covers at the beginning. Uh, make sure there's eye contact with uh, mm. the, the reader. So if you look at all the early issues of Blueprint, the, the, the subject on the cover with Zaha Hadid, Sir James Sterling, whoever, they, wow. they are all looking straight at the camera. Often photographed by Phil Sayers, who was yeah. a great guy. Yeah, amazing. What did it feel like that first issue that came out? Like the when you start seeing it around the place after all that effort? Because I mean, you you never know when you're putting something together like that if it's going to resonate well with people. It clearly did. 
It, it did, yeah. It, it was. It, it was always lovely to see it in places you didn't expect it to be. But uh, of course, as, as uh, sales was something I was very keen on, I, I would spend most of my time making sure that it was at the front of all the other magazines. So yeah. I, I would go into news agents and shuffle out, shuffle their shelves around so that we got uh, a bit of uh, notice. So how long did that last for? Uh, well, uh, I uh, was there up until... 1996 mm-hmm. um we we had we, we had a very good 80s and then uh, the crash uh, the stock market crash 1988 that took about two years really it's quite interesting how long it took to to get into uh, the architectural profession and the design world and i, I can remember in november 1990 suddenly getting back these piles of uh, magazines which we'd sent out a few days earlier uh, with stamps on it saying no longer at this address you know people were just going bust left right and center and you would have larger companies who would uh, you know be be buying 12 copies of uh, blueprint every month to give out to their staff so sorry you know we can't do this here only one copy so uh, sales dropped advertising drop we 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 kept going um uh, until 1996 and then we we just had to sell Mm. and uh we we were we were kept going in in the 90s by um word search now word search yeah how'd that come about well word search was actually the name of the company we bought to um run blueprint Ah. and then how it became a brand on its That's own cool. was basically two things happened about the same time, about 1986, I suppose, after Blueprint had been going for, uh, well, three years by then. And there's a chap called uh, Peter Palumbo, now Lord Palumbo, was redeveloping uh, a building in the, in the right in the centre of the City of London uh, called Number One Poultry. And it was a. It is now. It's built now. One of the key, I say, postmodern buildings of, uh, of 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 that time and still existing in London. And James Sterling, who was designing it, um, refused to do any drawings that uh, could be understood by the marketplace. All his drawings were designed either for building or complex buildings which he uh, drawings that he liked to do like worm's eye perspectives <laughs> which your man in your street doesn't really read no. those very well yeah so um uh, peter palumbo um, asked terry farrell who we'd just done some work for um do you know anyone who could uh, you know put together a document that could explain to us um what uh, uh. the buildings are like so uh, peter palumbo came to us and said can you do this um, brochure uh, do some drawings which we can understand and so we did that we did a nice little brochure with illustrations and plans which showed to the marketplace to the agents in the city and to future occupiers what the building was going to be like it's quite important for them mm. really yeah and then at the same time uh, as a, uh, uh, probably our most famous developer in london guy called Stuart Lipton was developing Broadgate, big air rights development uh, in the city of London, large uh, area with uh, 13 or 14 buildings at that time, uh, 
good, interesting public space. He was a reader of uh, Blueprint and he said, um, can you guys um, just do brochures like Blueprint? We want, we want something mm. which really stands out amongst the rest of them, the dross which is being produced at the yeah. moment by uh, graphic designers and so on, which was true. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, so yeah, we 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 said yeah. So it started off with um, uh, just the um, uh, Simon Essence department would produce some of these things, you know, in a bit of downtime during the month. And then then it started getting a bit too pressurized. So we thought, well, we better set up a special team just to deal mm-hmm. with all the. Um, property stuff which was beginning to come through because we did one and so then somebody else said oh can you do one for us and uh, one for us and so we we started yeah. doing uh, a lot of it and is that because you you truly understood architecture and you knew how to communicate it to the general public the story behind it yeah so i think the experience on blueprint had been very useful because we then had this broader idea of how do you get it out to a wider public uh, clearly the architectural background was important we yeah. understood plans we understood of the efficiency of floor plans and yeah. floor plates things like that uh, but also uh, what was what was really really important is that uh, Stuart Lipton was one of the first developers who really did proper research into what the market wanted, you know, before people just stuck up buildings and hoped somebody would uh, rent them. He went to the States. Uh, he went to Heinz and asked them, well, you know, how do you do it? Went to other people. He came back, a lot of information. And he hired a firm called DEGW, who were then the experts in uh, what was then called Bureau Landschaft, landscaped office space, uh, you know, redesigning the office for mm. contemporary users and so on. And they they did uh, a study out of uh, Lipton's research, um, which looked at what what people wanted out of their offices, and and uh, it it was all pretty straightforward. You know, they they wanted a, a good location, decent looking offices, efficient yeah. floor plates, and plenty of amenities around bars, um, restaurants, and uh, all that sort of stuff. So, so that actually set a a a, a pattern uh, for how we did brochures, which was basically, um, you know, we followed DGW's uh, research. We so macro to micro. You know, we start off great location. Um, mm. This is what it looks like. This is what the plan's like. This is what the specification specification is. So, from you know the, its its global position down to the last nut and bolt, and uh, that. That just worked. That's in. That was before uh, marketing of buildings became more yeah. um, uh, personality oriented. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd call it. It was all about you've got a. This is your biggest investment you're going to make. You're going to make sure it works. It's going to work for you. It's going to work for your staff, and it's going to be efficient. And those were the sort of key issues that we were looking at, and and that that became you know known in the trade as a word search brochure. So uh, the the. You know, the only brief we would get from clients would say, "Oh, yeah, we just want a word search brochure." So that's what we we did for, um, I, sp- I suppose up, up up until almost about the early two thousands. Then I, I I guess marketing became more sensual, uh, touchy feely, and you 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 had a very different approach to 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 marketing, yeah, which um, didn't wasn't wasn't my style, and I moved out then. Ah, so. Did you also at that time create the brand for the buildings? Oh yes, yes, yeah, and and naming. I mean, I I I, uh, 
Yeah, I, I like going going past buildings which I named and are still up there in the way and the names are, are still there. Um, oh, cool. Be, be um, uh, my 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 fav, fav, favorite one is um, Mid City Place, which um, is in Hoban, which then we were trying to brand as as as, as Mid City, uh, but it is also it was also built by Matsushita Investment and Development I M I D, so Mid City Mid City ah. Place, and and it's still there. So I go past. That. I thought, oh yeah, that's that was me. So did you say you got out in the two thousand in two thousand? How did that work? Did you sell out or? No, um, it, it 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 happened more gradually than that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as I say, everything everything crashed in 1990. The, but the thing that actually kept both Blueprint going and Word Search going was, um, weirdly enough, the IRA, because the IRA put off two big bombs in uh, the city of London, destroying. Uh, quite a few buildings and these were all having to be rebuilt and relet and uh, all the costs were being paid by insurance companies right so that meant two things one there was a lot of work for us to do to remarket buildings which had been damaged yeah so uh, quite a big job in actually uh, reassuring people that they would stand up but also we um the the agents didn't too worry too much about the costs, so it was wow. actually quite, uh, you know, might say, profit wise for the company, and so that did keep us going until the the, the uh, mid nineties, when, as I say, we we sold the magazine and then we carried on uh, with uh, word search, mm-hmm. and it gradually grew. We we, we it was a, a fairly straightforward move for us to move uh, to working in Hong Kong. We did quite a lot of work in, in, in Hong Kong because there were architects in London working in Hong Kong. Yeah. The connections were very close at that time. Then um, to working in Taiwan and then uh, then working in the Middle East. And it, it wasn't it wasn't until the mid 2000s we started working in um, America. But uh, so when I say it's gradual, um, uh, we brought in some uh, uh, new managing director uh, to uh, word search to run the property business. Uh, my son William joined as well, and they started doing more, and I started doing it less mm-hmm. because I um, had the idea of the London Festival of Architecture, mm-hmm. and that that came back largely because. Um, uh, I guess I, I, it was probably because uh, Dan Sujic, uh, who had been editing Blueprint, he then was the director of the Venice Biennale one year. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, what is it about the Venice Biennale which is, um, I might say, useful and good? Now, it, it's a great place to bring architects from around the world to show off their, their works. But it actually has no impact on Venice as a as a city at all, mm-hmm. apart from you know it fills the Tourism, restaurants and uh, and it's a great party. Yeah. But uh, there's 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 no real impact on it in architectural terms. So if we did something in London, it should be something which is much more embedded in the community, mm-hmm. and that I think continues on the whole idea, the blueprint idea that how do we spread world of architecture out to a wider audience and. So that was that was that was a project I w- I was start- uh, pondering as I as I left Venice, 
and as as with as with a lot of projects i uh, i i find it quite a good thing to tell people what you're planning and then once you've committed yourself you can't get out of it and then you have to do it <laughs> so uh, so um it was actually published in the architects journal uh, one week by a reporter i've been chatting to and yeah once it was published yeah i had to get out and do it so i so uh the we at the at the time and so you know the other directors word search were very tolerant of my absence uh, for large chunks of time uh, we had the office in clerkenwell i had calculated that there were more architects per square meter in clerkenwell than anywhere else in the world mm -hmm. and this was the place to um have an an event and so uh, we started off, we found a really nice old warehouse building which had been empty for some time and we used that as a base and we did a whole lot of things in the Clerkenwell area. That was in 2004. And the, the sort of key feature that we did, uh, and I thought we'd, we'd do it for one year, see how it goes. And we had a series of exhibitions, talks and lectures and all that sort of thing, but the focal point was a cow drive down St. John Street. Now, St. John Street in Clarkerwell was the old route that mm. drovers would uh, take cows down. Yeah. They came up from the north of England. They would come down through John Street and be slaughtered in Smithfield Market, yeah. south end of uh, uh, St. John Street. And so we found a, a, a small herd of longhorn cattle, which is what would have gone down St. John Street in the 18th century. Wow. We grassed over the whole of the street wow. and uh, drove the cows down to the uh, uh, to a little... Uh, buyer in in the middle of the street so there were a number of thoughts why we did that one it, it created good publicity two um, grassing over the street was saying actually this is a pretty bog standard street but it could be a nice park as well and then also the shape of the city that that uh, St John Street is shaped by its historic uses, and this gives people an understanding of why London is such a fascinating city and mm. how it has been shaped by two thousand years of of history. So, uh, so this uh, had a whole series of, of of lessons to it, and it was hugely successful. You know, we had fifteen thousand people turning up at St John Street um, uh, on the day, and I realised that uh, you know we had something and we ought to do it again and i i, I remember i mean there used to be in in, in smithfield a, a a nightclub underneath the meat market there and oh fabric fabric yes yeah. yes and uh and people would i thought i saw you dancing there a few times <laughs> <laughs> no i was out laying turf <laughs> on the street yeah and uh you know at four o'clock in the morning People would stagger out of fabric, oh, and and God. they would just be lying on the grass as though it was they were lying on a beach in the south of France. And, and that transformation of a street just by laying grass was just real yeah, eye opener. Amazing. And you realise actually what we need to do is start looking at streets as public spaces in cities yeah. rather than just as uh, thoroughfares and conduits for deadly tin boxes. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a lot of information. <laughs> uh, incredible. Um, 
it seems to me like you what, what, what where's your jump off point on projects you start something you're on it for a while and then you onto something else is it is it just your nature that you want to do something different or uh, evolve in ideas i'm never quite sure whether it's something to do with architectural training or whether it is it's something which is fairly uh, uh, fairly normal in, in people because it is actually written into a lot of governance that, uh, you know, five years seems to be quite a good time to do anything. So uh, yeah. five years training at architecture, then uh, uh, maybe you do five years at something else and, and yeah, move yeah. on. But also now, if you look at uh, uh, governance, for instance, if you're uh, chair of a charity board or something like that, governance says, you know, most chairs should only remain chairs for five years uh, and you know after that you um, uh, turn it over to somebody else because the enthusiasm tends to wane slightly so uh, your but, your enthusiasm do you, do you then get bored with what you're doing uh, not so much bored but i think i'm more a starter than a a, a mm, manager so yeah, yeah. i enjoy the 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 the, the risk of yeah. starting uh, it's really exciting to be doing something which is which is new uh, but they all these things come about from you see an issue and you re respond to it. So, for instance, it, it, uh, looking back, I'm not quite sure why I did so much in such a short space of time. But anyway, uh, so 2004 uh, launched the Festival of Architecture. Then in 2005 launched New London Architecture. And uh, that 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 came about, you know, this was an opportunity. And when you see an opportunity, you have to take it, I think. That's yeah. a, and so basically what happened, there was, there's a place called the Building Centre in London, uh, which had a nice big exhibition space. They just spent a lot of money doing it up, mm -hmm. but nobody was going there. So the chairman took me out to lunch. He said, oh, can you put on an exhibition to, um, uh, you know, liven the place up a bit? And so I said, well... You know, maybe we should do something about London because, you know, everybody in London's interested in London. Visitors to London are interested. And you could do something like the Pavillon d'Arsenal in Paris, which was started up in uh, the uh, 1970s uh, in order to show off all the grand projets that uh, the, uh, they, were, they were building at the time. A way of explaining to the public what the government was doing to build stuff and it's really interesting space if you want to find out about what's happening in Paris go to the Pavillon d'Arsenal mm. we thought we could produce uh, something like that so I I, uh, I joined up with a chap called Nick McKeough um, and Nick's family had this big model of London so working with him was 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 really really important and uh, so we set that up and we we opened uh in July 2005. Yeah, so recently. Uh, and I'm, I'm here in London and I'm going to the event, NLA event tomorrow, um, which sounds really exciting. What, what happened at that event? Well, I, I mean, it, it was um, a really weird time because the day before we opened, we just won the Olympic bid. Mm -hmm. And uh, everyone was... We hadn't expected to do. Everyone thought Paris was going to be so. It was a real surprise that we'd won. So people were pretty euphoric. And then I was um, in in a taxi going to NLA to uh, or to the building centre to op open NLA up. We we're going to have a party later in the day, and it was about nine fifteen in the morning. And uh, 
the taxi driver uh, said, oh, I said, he won't go that way. There's a bit of a, a snarl up in the tower. I think there's been some sort of electrical failure on the tube. And uh, we then were driving uh, only a few hundred metres from the building centre and suddenly there was this big crump. And, uh, yeah, you knew it was a bomb. And uh, that was that was a bus uh, that had uh, exploded, killing an, a number of people. Oh, but wow. previous to that, there'd been explosion in the Piccadilly line, uh, where um, Jill Hicks, um, uh, Australian Australian of the Year, I think of 2015, uh, lost both her legs. Mm. Jill Hicks had worked for Blueprint uh, for a number of years uh, on our, our sort of marketing and, and sales side. And so that that that, uh, I mean, that was a, a real moment for London, mm. and uh, and uh, I think you know, Jill has created an amazing response, particularly now we're in a period where the tensions seem to be rising uh, amongst those issues around um, Islamism and uh, so on, and uh, you know, she's a great heroic figure really yeah incredible anyway so we 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 didn't have the party well actually i said if people want to come to nla do come so we we had a small group a lot of people didn't want to travel at the time uh but we uh, so we kept going i i always think that you know we have this big model of london and when you when 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 you look at the city and when things like that happen you realise, you know, how resilient cities are, yeah. that they go through fires, pestilence, bombing, destruction, Pandemics. and they recreate, they rebuild. And I, I, I thought that was, a, that was a great lesson for us. Mm -hmm. But also, as I say, it was a time when the Olympics were, uh, we won the Olympics, so there was all the planning that went into that. And that, to a certain, was a very exciting period for NLA. So the Olympic uh, site was probably one of the sort of key focus of our discussions for the first few years and I mean in terms of getting that one going we, we were we were going through a bit of a boom in the early 2000s so mm -hmm. actually funding it wasn't too hard no. developers would sponsor exhibitions relatively easily but the crunch came 2008 2009 the Lehman crash, all that sort of stuff made uh, everything and uh, construction and architecture that much more difficult. And that that, that was where we rejigged uh, the whole structure for NLA into a membership organization rather than a sponsored organization. And uh, that is just a, you know, it's, 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 it's I think it's, it's, it's a, a brilliant model, very sustainable model, mm -hmm. you know, Public money is very fickle. We we used to have an organisation here called the Commission for Architecture and Built Environment, yep. CABE, for short, and that was a really really good operation promoting good architecture. New government comes in. Oh no, we don't want this. Cut the money, and you know it collapses overnight. Overnight, it's gone. Yep. Uh, whereas we, with our, our membership, we you know no uh, no member, and even the mayor of London is a member, not a sponsor. Uh, they uh, they have less than one percent of our total income, so uh, it, it gives us a lot of freedom. It gives us uh, a lot of resilience, and 
you know, maybe at this particular time we need resilience, really, because the next few years are going to be quite tough in the built environment professions. Yeah, they definitely are. Um, just talk about your what you've seen of London. You, you know, London's as you said, two thousand years old. How do you see it's changed since you first came to London to it? How it is today? Because it's changed significantly. Um, certainly for me, leaving in two thousand three um, and coming back. Um, you know, just prior to the, after the pandemic, um, just could not believe the transformation of the city and far more places with the grass, you know, the grass, grass streeted areas um, popping up everywhere and a lot of public places, places for people to thrive in. Um, how have you seen that? I mean, that must have been incredible for you to be on that journey from a more of a historical ton of time, uh, you know, more heritage than it is today. Definitely. Yes. Uh, well, I think that you know when when I when I came to London, then I, I, I guess I wasn't expecting much, having come from yeah. <laughs> the country. Yeah. Uh, so that was all very exciting. But l looking back, a lot of it was it was pretty shabby. Uh, you, you know, bad tube service, bad bus. You never knew when the next bus was going to come along. Things like that, uh, and. Uh, there was uh, a, a lot of housing was in really, really bad repair and not much money to do it. We then went through the uh, 70s when rubbish in the streets, lots of strikes everywhere. But there was this huge um, grunge, uh, punk uh, might say rebellion coming up which was mm -hmm. you know it wasn't, wasn't something that i was particularly attracted to but you could see that it was really powerful powerful force which has been you know has really had an influence uh, ever since really mm -hmm. uh, and that was that was an interesting uh, sort of uh, response really to uh, the beatles and the rolling stones of of of, of the 60s and that that the, the pop culture and the liverpool lads and all that sort of thing but uh, so London might have been scruffy, but it was very uh, creative, very active, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of things going on. And then, you know, there were spaces to do stuff. As I say, we, you know, when, when we started Blueprint, we had a office in Maribyrn High Street at four pound a square foot. The problem now is all the space is filled up. Mm. And actually, it's very difficult to find. You have to go way out to the suburbs yeah, to yeah. find or even, you know, move to another city to find those sort of spaces. So actually, um, uh, although it felt a bit run down, it was very creative and things were happening and people had space to do things. And, yeah. and uh, I suppose had something to kick against as well. And then I would say then the big change was in, in 2000, uh, we had uh, a Labour government. Uh, we had uh, a an elected mayor for the first time for London and we had a London plan which was uh, advised the key advisor was was Richard Rogers an architect I think that's really important and you know what he did to change the city uh, is has, has been enormous I mean fundamentally what he said was that uh, we need to have uh, denser new development. All that development needs to be on good uh, public transport lines. And instead of uh, building out, and we can't really do that because we have a green belt around London, uh, we, we have to uh, build up and actually make the city more dense. Because actually there was a shift of people 
in in the in the 1670s a lot of people were moving out of london then in the 90s they started moving back in and we saw a lot of growth going on so one of the really fascinating things when you look at our model of uh, uh, london in 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 the london center it, uh, and this is the best way to understand what has happened in the last uh, uh, 23 years or so is you see pockets of taller development in these uh, areas of higher higher buildings uh, which actually uh, are new often mixed communities so you've got somewhere like king's cross for instance which is generally Incredible. seen as the the best uh, uh, regeneration mm. area probably yeah. in the whole of Europe maybe in the whole of the world really wow. really well done projects or you have Canary Wharf or you have the area around Stratford where the Olympics were which is being um, you know, the first really sustainable Olympics in that and that was you know key to the messages that we were drawing out from the uh, story of the Olympics was that uh, the Olympics, uh, Ken Livingston, who was the mayor who actually wanted the Olympics to come to London, wasn't interested in sport at all. He couldn't care less about sport. All he knew was that if you get the Olympics, or even even if you bid for the Olympics, you get money from government, you get money from industry. Yeah. And the east of London was always the poorest part of it yeah. after the docks were closed down in the 1960s. So the Olympics were seen as a regenerative uh, tool to actually make that. Uh, area blossom and if you go to Stratford now it is uh, fantastic not yeah. all the buildings are great but actually you've got uh, you know, mixed use environment plenty of housing a new cultural centre which is uh, going to open next year or so but also just now there's a new school of fashion a new uh, uh, building for University College London moved there suddenly you get lots of students in there it's active vibrant and changing so there has been you know, a huge amount of growth in, in in london over those 20 years huge amount of development and not not all of it great but a lot of it improving people's lives a lot and with the prior to brexit i guess it was thriving too with the investment from our, our european countries yeah, um, as, as a headquarters here and everything yes um, it was, and I think it still is. Actually, I, 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 I was very much a Remainer. I, I, um, I still find the idea of Brexit totally uh, depressing, really. Mm. Uh, but actually, there was thought that all the banks would move out of uh, London and go to Europe. Uh, some have, and a few people have moved out, but it ha hasn't been as great as uh, we had feared. And mm. actually, if you look at what is happening. In the city of London at the moment, uh, there is no a uh, you know major pickup in uh, office uh, rentals. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been growth, and so there's okay. some eleven new towers being built there, uh, which they expect to fill by sort of two thousand and twenty six, seven, eight that sort of period. Yep. Uh, and if you compare that to New York, it's actually uh, doing uh, really well in attracting people back post COVID into into the centre. So, it has in terms of the impact on London, hasn't been as bad as uh, we had feared. Yeah, I, I would say from architectural point of view, it's it. it you know, 
I, I, th I think the first uh, you know, 20 years in London of, of the 21st century, where we had this, these uh, multicultural offices, so you would, you know, you, uh, quite a few of these people have stayed, but uh, if you, you go into offices and, you know, you'd have a Spanish architect, you would have an Italian architect, you'd have a German architect, a, uh, a French architect, all working together in, in the same office. And, mm -hmm. you know, they all bring slightly different cultural... Uh, resonances with them and that creates a really really rich output mm -hmm. and I think that we're in danger of losing that just as I think on a wider cultural basis you know we, we if, if, if we're not careful we just become um, English rather than international yeah, yeah had you ever imagined that London would become what it is today you know back back when you were uh, at university well, I, I mean, it's, it's changed so so much. I mean, or do you think it's got a long, long way to go, or do you think it's will it ever be there? Well, I, I, I would say I, I do firmly believe actually that uh, London is the greatest city on earth, largely because we do have this history. So you say, well, what about New York? And, you know, that's great. I love love New York, but New York's only been going for what five hundred years, you know. London's been going 2000 so these layers and layers of history are really important what shapes the the, the city and it has been a, a a successful international trading city for 800 years you know and all those things are really important in terms of both the physical fabric but also the, the social fabric and I would have thought you know of of of, of the things which have been important in the last uh, 20 years. The increased diversity in London has been absolutely uh, vital, both to its economic health, uh, but also it means that it's a great and a really lively place to be. And I would say that um, I always feel a really important moment I went to was after the 2005 uh, bombings, where it, it, it was feared that there would be people on the streets, uh, you know, as a result, that uh, Ken Livingstone, who was then mayor, held a, a large gathering in, in Trafalgar Square where he had rabbis, imams, uh, uh, you know, a whole panoply of uh, religious leaders uh, there, and they had this big public meeting where they called for Londoners to um, you know, stay together, really. And so I think that uh, as, 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 as we are now in a period where these frictions are really... Um, not a, in a great place. I think one of the interesting things in 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 in, you know, in wider British multicultural society, it is difficult for uh, people sometimes to identify with their new uh, places. Whereas, thing about London is that when people come to London, whether whether they come from Laycock or Lagos, you you are a, you become a Londoner, and actually the identity of Londoners, I think, is is a very powerful. Thing and the identity of London is very powerful. Something which uh, is is not new, uh, but I think it does have real resonance today. What's your second uh, most favourite city in the world then? Oh, Sydney. Is of it? Course. <laughs> uh, well, well, I, 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 uh, I, well, to be honest, I think probably New York is because I can go there more easily. Getting to Sydney takes a bit of time, but mm. I. I, I I wrote a book on the Sydney Opera House, mm -hmm. and uh, so I you know, I made a lot of friends there and a lot of friends over here, um, from 
Sydney and also my son Rupert, my son, who is a filmmaker, is married to uh, his wife is Australian. So, so and, and my father actually, um, uh, yeah, b before he uh, was um, a public health officer, he was he was sent out to Australia when he was sixteen, actually, to make a man of him, and uh, wow. he was uh, working on um, farming. Wagga Wagga he, was or it, he wasn't a convict, I hope. He was. He wasn't. He wasn't a convict. But uh, <laughs> I. I. I think his. He, his parents didn't know quite what to do with him. I think and sent wow. him out there for a bit. It's incredible your involvement in the city, and architecture, and and the, and trying to help promote and communicate, uh, good architecture, good good place planning. Um, you know, you you've. Uh, made a con considerable uh, contribution to helping the city be the city that it is today. And no wonder you got an OBE as well um, for your efforts. Um, how does it feel to you? Do you feel like you just, there's more? There's more that you want to do? There's more you want to give? Yeah. I, I, well, new, there, Has it been five years in a new project you're going to start uh, shortly? Uh, there is still a lot to do. I'm not sure that I'll be starting any great organisations uh, uh, again. But the, uh, the uh, I would say, you know, one of my key interests is around the idea of active travel, and there is uh, a strategy in the London Plan that uh, at the moment only six sixty percent of Londoners make their journeys generally by using walking, cycling. Uh, or some sort of micro transport and uh, uh, public transport. So uh, you know, th that that is uh, the the most efficient and healthy way of of, of getting around cities. So I'm uh, you know, I'm 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 a keen cyclist, uh, but also I think that it's important that uh, uh, cyclists and pedestrians are are giving given preference. And I guess one one of my yeah proudest things is. Uh, 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 coming out of my uh, cycling adventures, I, uh, in 2013, I cycled across the States with uh, a number of other architects and planners. And we were actually looking at what uh, cities in America were doing to improve their uh, infrastructure for mainly for, for cycling. Oh, wow. And uh, so we came back uh, with a report and we, we looked at uh, the sort of various things which could ap apply to uh, London and hopefully Britain more generally, but London. And uh, a lot of this was was about uh, creating the right sort of relationship between different road users, greater respect between road users. So we we, we came up with this this idea, uh, which actually is law in some uh, uh, countries in Europe, but uh, it'd be impossible to make it law in the UK for various reasons. So what we came up with, the idea of that there should be this hierarchy uh, between uh, vehicles, cyclists and pedestrians, i.e. The, the stronger give way to the weak. Mm. And uh, so we did a little report, a little sign, uh, which shows to people, you know, if you're a motorist, give way to the cyclist. If you're a cyclist, give way to the pedestrian. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, last year, uh, the Department of Transport here rewrote the highway code. And one of the key new things in that was the hierarchy of road users. 
mm. which wow we weren't the only people thinking about it but i was very chuffed when the guy who actually drafted all the new uh code tweeted that say and thanks to at pgs murray for the inspiration for this wow. so from that uh ride came what is one of, i think one of the most substantial changes to the way people drive in uh london and unfortunately we don't we don't do publicity and public information very well anymore we used to uh, but we don't so people learn about stuff on social media but actually now if if you're walking around london this is only 12 months after this came in with re relatively little publicity um uh, if you're walking across a junction you will have you have priority to mm. uh, cars and vehicles turning left and yep. you will find that most will stop for you now yeah, yeah. and uh, that that's a funda fundamental change so i'm yeah, i'm very very proud of that my and uh, yeah so c cycling i i i think is is a great uh thing for most uh well raising uh, charity money as well we 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 have a ride to a big property fair every year i started that in 2006 actually so yeah so 2004 i did the festival of architecture 2000 Five was NLA. Then two thousand six was this thing called, which we called then Cycle to Cannes. It's now called Club Peloton, and uh, so that's fifteen hundred kilometres. And we raise money for an organisation called Corum, who look after orphans basically. Wow. And uh, so up and up until COVID, you know, we'd have two pelotons of 100 riders going down there uh, they they go too fast for me these days but uh, and you know raise raises between quarter of a million half a million pounds per year to uh, for quorum and i guess that's another one of my proudest achievements i don't really run it now there's a very good team who run it but mm -hmm. uh, having started it that uh, you know the the the, the um, ceo of Quorum in a speech the, uh, not long ago said uh, sort of thanking Club Peloton, saying it was the uh, the largest individual donor to Quorum since William Hogarth, uh, which is saying something because Quorum is the oldest charity in the UK, started in the 16th wow. century, and I'm sure Hogarth was pretty well off in those days. So that's incredible. I bet you, you must feel good when you see that uh, transformation and idea come to life and, and realize its potential of doing good. Oh yeah, well yeah. When when uh, when I'm when I'm right, as I say, I, I the last time I did it, was 2015, because they they cyclists are all much more, um, much quicker, fitter these days, and uh, so as you uh, you go through wet and rainy Calais, cold upper parts of France, and you go down towards the Mediterranean as you come up over the last big hill down to the blue Mediterranean and the sun. Yeah, yeah, I weep as I see, <laughs> see this peloton snaking down the road. It's like the Tour de France. We have um, motorcycle escorts. They stop the traffic and we just ride the whole yeah. way through, which amazing. is amazing. And just getting around London this week, uh, you know, when I used to live here, I used to ride motorbikes or drive everywhere. Um, there was a congestion charge that slowed things up down a bit. But, you know, now it's just like completely pedestrianized uh cycle lanes you know scooters uh there seems to be hardly any traffic in london and it's certainly gentler a lot of electric vehicles as well um i jumped in a on a scooter i was staying at king's cross 
jumped on a scooter. I'm in Soho in 15 minutes. Uh, cost me something like $3 or three pounds or whatever it was. Nothing. I mean, it's just so easy and it feels safe. London never felt safe before to me. Uh, high levels of crime and aggressive traffic. Um, it seems that aggression has been diminished, you know, through the kind of, I guess, restrictions in some ways. Well, that's good if you feel like that. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I often find myself cycling uh, quite aggressive motorists, I would say. Oh, do you? In a, yeah, in, in a sort of 10-mile uh, journey that I do most days. Uh, I would I would say you know somebody tries to wipe me out once or twice, uh, you know just not looking turning turning left in front of me, uh, but uh, no that that's good to know. But I think that you see it it is now very expensive to bring a car into London, which I think is is very good because not only do you have congestion charge in the centre, you have ultra low emission zone, which is now mm. covering the whole of London, which mm. has been uh, very unpopular, and has generated a reaction. Uh, of, of um, you know, our, our prime minister talked about he's going to stop this war on cars, and you know I, I mean I think he's right. It, it is a war. People say, oh no, of course it's not a war. I think it is, but but it's trench warfare. It it it's something that uh, you know every sensible city in the world is uh, moving away from private cars to more public transport, uh, seeing. Uh, streets as places in the city, not just as conduits for mm. uh, movement of goods, and that that shift is happening. And the problem is that it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, if you look somewhere like uh, Copenhagen, you know, where Jan Gale has been leading the charge to, mm. as a, you know, the architect and planner looking at the change in uh, uh, Copenhagen, he's been doing it for. Uh, 50 years really and has made huge changes to the city and you know, he talks about you know designing cities for people and i mm. think you know people should uh, uh, shape cities not cars and you know for the last century our car our city centers have been destroyed by cars yep. and now we have a a period when we have to look at rebuilding them into places for people rather than places for vehicles you cycle what else do you do for your 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 health actually mainly cycling i i i, I i'm have uh, a this this a, a a chap called professor norman lazarus who has been doing a lot of uh, research into uh, health of older people and uh, you know i'm i'm just about 80 now wow, so really yeah looking good so um he 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 reckons that if you can maintain a VO2 max, um, which is really the ability of your heart to uh, you know deliver oxygen to your muscles, um, of uh, around thirty five liters per whatever it is. Anyway, if if you maintain that level of fitness, uh, then uh, you 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 have a. a a, a healthy age of about 20 years less than most of people of wow. similar age and also that you can uh, at least uh, stop most communicable diseases you know you can't stop cancers and things like that but you can yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're you're better at your immune system is much stronger so so i followed him quite a lot but uh, i would say now there are more and more uh, uh, very good books actually about uh, 
older health and i'm 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 taking that sort of quite seriously so i do, uh i thought just doing cycling was fine but now i realize you know at my age you have to do weights as well so um resistance training uh is something i i do more of mm-hmm. bit of that but uh i just uh, cycling is very good i'm i'm at the moment uh just uh cycling around the coast of britain by stages i do that in four or five days i'll do um four or five hundred k oh, that's nice. and uh that's that's actually that's six thousand kilometers actually if you go wiggling all the way around which yeah, is about yeah. the same as cycling across the states but uh, wow. i can do it in smaller smaller bits so that'll take me a few more years to complete and you're not done yet by any means but um peter do you, have you des- do you think you've designed your life well, no, I, I've, I've never actually designed uh, my life. I don't think I, again, going back to architectural training, I think one of the great things about architectural training is that it, it's project-based. You know, you, you're given an office, a city, uh, uh, a house to design, and uh, you start it, you do it, you deliver it, you're told whether it's any good or not, and then you move on to the next. And to a certain extent, I would say that, I've I've run my life a bit like that. You yeah. see an opportunity, yeah. um, let's do it, do it, deliver it. That's done. On to the next one. Well, Peter, it's been so cool to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Your Life with the legendary Peter Murray, OBE. Tune in to the next episode where I catch up with Carlo Giannasca, my business partner and managing director here at Frost Collective, where we will chat about the science behind designing wayfinding solutions to effectively move people through complex places along with impeccable attention to detail and affinity with the Swiss type grid. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.